0: The second book of Samuel chapter 13 commencing to read at verse 28 Now Absalom had commanded his servant, saying, Mark ye now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say unto you, Smite Amnon, then kill him. Fear not, have not I commanded you. Be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Absalom did unto Amnon, as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, every man gat him upon his mule, and fled. Verse 37. Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing that he was dead. Chapter 14 and verse 12 The woman said, Let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak one word unto my lord the king. And he said, say on. The woman said, Wherefore hast thou thought such a thing against the people of God? For the king doth speak this thing as one which is faulty, in that the king doth not fetch home again his banished. For we must needs die, and there is water spilt upon the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Neither doth God respect any person, yet doth he devise means that his banished, be not expelled from him. Verse 23, So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him turn to his own house, let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. Chapter 15, It came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and fifty men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right. But there is no man deputed to the king to hear thee. Absalom said moreover all that I were made judge in the land. That every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me and I would do him justice. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance. He put, put forth his hand and took him and kissed it. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the heart. Of the men of Israel. Chapter 18 and verse 31. Absalom's rebellion, of course, came to a head and it was finally defeated through the skillfulness of Joab, David's commander in chief. We read in verse 31 Behold, Cushai came and Cushai said, Tidings, my lord the king. For the Lord hath avenged thee this day of all them that rose up against thee. The king said unto Kashai, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Kashai answered, The enemies of my Lord the King, and all that rise against thee to do thee hurt, be as that young man is. And the king was much moved, and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, Thus he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would God I had died for thee. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Shall we pray? Now, Lord, we ask as we consider the story of this, this man who lived so long ago, tragedy of whose life is spread before us upon the page of Scripture. We pray that we may find a lesson in it for our own hearts this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Absalom, of course, lived a thousand years before the birth of Christ, but his spiritual sons and heirs are with us today and they are multiplying on the face of the earth. For Absalom was a rebel and a violent rebel at that. He was a man without natural affection, a despiser of those that are good, capable of every conceivable lust, and with patricide in his heart. Yet for all that, Absalom, to all outward appearances, was a striking young man. In his personal appearance, he was as handsome as a god. And when he cared to exert himself, that is, when his own selfish interests were involved, he could exert a charisma all his own and bind men to himself. His greatest success seems to have been with the young people of his day. With the generation that cared nothing for David and had no love and no loyalty at all for the Lord's anointed. Absalom was capable of the utmost villainy, of heartless cruelty, And of unblushing hypocrisy. And yet David loved him. David would have done anything to redeem Absalom. And he mourned greatly. When he learned of his doom. There are three warning peaks. In the story of Absalom to dominate the skyline of this young man's life. We are confronted, first of all, with his rage. Then we are confronted with his resentment. And finally, we are confronted with his rebellion. It is around these three things, his rage and his resentment and his ultimate out and out rebellion against the throne of the Lord's anointed that his story revolved. And these three things led him into ever deeper and more open defiance of the Lord's anointed and of the living God until at last they led him out into that endless night in which he has been wailing out his remorse and his regrets and his eternal ruin these last 3,000 years. And as we've done night after night in the stories of these other men, we are going to be looking this evening primarily at Absalom's relationship to David. And so we begin by studying the rage of Absalom. And I suppose I suppose that we don't find it difficult at all, really, to sympathize with Absalom's feelings. I don't have to tell you all the story. The story of Absalom's sister's shameful seduction by Amnon need not be repeated here. It's a shameful story. Amnon like Absalom, was one of David's sons. He was a selfish, infamous young man, accustomed to having all his legitimate wants and wishes instantly gratified, so much so that there came a time when he thought that all his illegitimate wants and wishes ought also to be instantly gratified. And one day it came into this jaded, young man's mind that his half-sister Tamer was a stunning-looking girl. And he decided he must have her for himself. He had long been persuaded by Satan that vice is manly, and that impurity is fashionable, and that a pig's tie is a good place to lie down in. And so when his lust for Tamar had satiated itself to that wretched girl's lasting dishonor and grief, Amnon simply washed his hands of the whole affair. And we read, when David heard of all these things, he was wrong. And so was Absalom. Tamar's full brother. But David, you see, stayed his hand. For if David was angry at the sin against Tamar, he was also long-suffering and patient and kind to Amnon. In wrath he remembered his mercy and his love held back to hang the hand that held the sword. Perhaps we are not told that perhaps he was waiting for Amnon to repent. I think he was. Or perhaps he thought that forbearance would work sorrow and remorse in that shameful young man's heart. It never did. Or perhaps he thought that he could reach this wretched young man with love. In any case, he held back the hand that held the sword of justice and judgment. But Absalom couldn't enter into that. All that Absalom could see was the terrible thing that had happened. All he could see that there was a fearful injustice had been done in the land, and nothing had been done to execute judgment upon the culprit. And he at once did what so many other people had done. He began to accuse the one who sat upon the throne of careless indifference, of criminal negligence. And consequently his heart was filled with rage. And he took the law eventually into his own hands and he arranged for his brother Amnon's murder. And instead of solving the problem, of course, as when always when we take matters into our own hands, instead of solving the problem, he only made it work. And it never entered his thoughts that his action also broke the heart of the one who sat upon the throne. You know there are millions of people in the world today just like that. They look at the horrible injustice wrought on every hand in the world in which we live. They look at the suffering, the crime, the terrible things that are done under heaven and they accused God as though he were to blame. I don't know if he's ever met Dr. Wilder Smith. Dr. Wilder Smith used to teach in the university in Chicago. He has pre earned doctorates. He's a fellowship in our Wheaton Chapel. And he used to tell of, a, of the days when he was a student in the natural sciences in England, and his professor was a rabid Marxist who would preach his hatred of God with vicious eloquent, eloquence from his soapbox in the classroom. And he talked something like this. What about the cat stalking the mouse and playing with it and letting it totter away half dead? and then grabbing it at the last minute in its horrible claws, he would demand. It's marvelous that your intelligent, almighty, all-loving and kind God prepared both the mouse in its helplessness and the cat with its strength and cruelty. And what about the lifetime of suffering in India and Russia? Did your God create all that? As well as the sun rises and laughing faces and he go on and on and on in a similar vein and Dr. Wilbur Wilder-Smith would say that pink professor was suffering from the same blindness that Absalom was he had a distorted view you see of the whole problem he was blinded by his own passions, to so the fact that behind all the seeming injustices of earth, there is a loving God, a God who, because he is a loving God, stays his hands. You may have heard of the, or met yourself, the kind of student who disliked mathematics, and yet he needed a knowledge of this subject to pass his exams And after many futile attempts to master one chapter on a rather abstruse aspect of the subject, he picks the book across the room and he said it's all bunk and nonsense. Maybe it was to him, but not to everybody. Others had mastered the same material and extracted meaning and significance from it. The problem wasn't with the subject but when the student who being unable to comprehend the message of the chapter concluded it was absurd nonsense. His conclusion was wrong. And just because we can't solve all the problems of life doesn't mean that they're incapable of solution. The whole problem of the seeming injustice on earth, the pain and the sorrow and the sinners going unpunished and of a silent heaven in the face of suffering. It does have an answer. It is simply this, that a God of love is staying his hands and that love is holding back the hand that holds the sword of vengeance Of course, Absalom's rage against David was entirely misplaced. Before long, he would be the transgressor. Then he would need the grace and the love and the patience and the forbearance that he was wanting to deny to his brother Amnon. And most people who rage against God for holding his hand in the face of the terrible things that are happening upon this planet are mad because God doesn't punish others. They forget that when the sword of judgment does fall, it will fall on them as well. And so we see Absalom's rage. It was a cold, calculating rage, the rage which burned on and on in his soul, the rage which vented it itself not in violent diatribes against the Lord's anointed upon the throne, but in calculated, deliberate action when the time was ripe. So we have to go on from the rage of Absalom to study the resentment of Absalom. For two years, for two long years, Absalom's rage simmered and boiled away in his soul. For two years, his secret rage against David rankled away in his heart. And then deciding that David was never going to right the wrongs of his world, he took the law into his own hand. He arranged a feast. He invited all the king's sons he invited Amnon along with them. Amnon the foul and the vile. He made Amnon drunk. And then he unleashed his hounds of vengeance and had Amnon publicly slain in broad daylight in the presence of all his guests with the world of his palace, ringing and ringing again with the sound of festive birth, Absalom's assassin strike. Out they rush from some dark corner of the room, and suddenly Absalom is dead, his blood gushing all over the table and his body falling with a crash to the floor. And then before men can turn around, Absalom is gone, matching his speed as he heads for the border to take refuge with his maternal grandfather, king of Geshur, a petty kingdom of Syria between Hermon and Damascus. And the deed is done and Absalom's hands are stayed with his brother's blood. And there, in Geshur, Absalom's resentment against David begins to grow. It's that kind of resentment that nothing can be the kind of resentment that a man harbors deliberately because he enjoys the feeling it brings. Nurtured, fostered malice. Until at last his resentment against David absolutely beggars description. There were two things that Absalom resented, in the first place he resented being punished. For three years he dwelt in exile and no doubt throughout the entire length of those three years he excused himself for what he had done. Wasn't he Tamar's brother? Had he not the right to avenge Tamar's disgrace? Did not the law of Moses demand that the man who had done a thing like this ought to be put to death? And after all, David hadn't executed him. Somebody had to execute him. It was really David's fault. If David had acted swiftly as he should have done, none of this would have happened. He should be praised, not punished, for doing what he did. And on and on rationalizing his own sins and finally blaming David for. In any case, why didn't David pardon him? Why didn't David allow him to come back? It wasn't there? David could overlook Amnon's sins. Why couldn't he overlook his? And so the fire smoldered and the resentment grew and grew and grew. And you know, all the time, all those three long years, David was grieving over Absalom. all the time that Amnon was building up this fierce resentment in his heart, Against the Lord's anointed, yon glorious man upon his throne would have given anything he had to bring him back. To bring Absalom back to the family, to bring him back to the fold, to have him near him again. Oh, how he longed to welcome Absalom back with open arms. If only, if only there was some way that he could bring him back, and if the brave were long for Absalom, They were far, far longer for David. And you know, it is right here that we come close to the very heart of the gospel message. For David was in a painful dilemma. He was caught between two opposite impulses. He was a man. And as a man his love went out to his son, he longed and ached after Absalom. He craved more than anything else in the world for Absalom's restoration he was a man but he was also a monarch and because he was a king he had the law to uphold there was a righteous law in its claims that had to be met Absalom had broken a law older far than Sinai whoso shed his man's blood by man shall his blood be shed as a parent David wished to pardon Absalom but as a prince he knew that he must punish Absalom. And so the struggle went on in the soul of the king. Pardon him, said his love. Punish him, said his law. Until there came a wise woman of Tekoa with her parable and her plea that God indeed himself was devised to be whereby he banished be not expelled from him. And David heeded the word of this wise woman and pardoned the guilty man and he resolved the conflict between paternal love and princely justice by sacrificing the justice in order to indulge his love and you know that collision between the paternal and the judicial in the heart and soul of David illustrates a discord of the identical kind which existed on a larger scale in the heart and the mind of God God's love said pardon the sinner God's law said punish the sinner and as soon as God's love rose up to pardon the sinner God's law rose up to say punish the sinner. And as soon as God's law rose up to punish the sinner, his love rose up to say, pardon the sinner. And that problem was resolved righteously to God's entire holy satisfaction, not by compromise, but at Calvary. story told of two young men who went to law school together one became a judge the other drifted into wayward paths and became a petty thief one day the thief was arranged before the judge who recognized his one-time friends, his schoolmate from his college days his pity said pardon him but his position said punish him. So the judge passed the maximum sentence that the law demanded and he fined him for the highest figure that the law required and satisfied his justice. And then he paid the fine himself and satisfied his love. And this is exactly how God solved the problem that David couldn't solve. At the place called Calvary, he passed upon the human race the greatest sentence that his holiness could decree, eternal death, everlasting banishment from the presence of God. And then in the person of his son, he came down under the place called Calvary. He laid down an eternal life for human sin. But we must come back to Absalom. Absalom resented being punished. He resented being shut out from the presence of David, even although he knew he was guilty. And then he was pardoned. The word came to him in Geshur between Damascus and the sea. Absalom, you can come home. You have received a pardon. You've been forgiven. And now notice what happened. Absalom, who resented being punished, resented being pardoned. We read he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. But that, however, didn't change the young man's heart. In his heart there continued to smolder a deep resentment against David. He resented having to bow down Himself to the ground. He resented having to listen to David's rules. He resented having to be subject to David at all. And that's exactly why God simply can't merely pardon the sinner and say, I forgive you. Let's forget it. God must not only pardon, he must regenerate. What Absalom really needed was something that David couldn't give him. He needed a new heart. He needed his own bitter, resentful, haughty, unyielding heart taken away from him. And he needed to be given in its place a heart of love and loyalty to David. David couldn't give him that, but that's what he needed. And without such a regeneration, a mere pardon, even a magnanimous pardon, which restored to him his place and his power and his possessions and his prestige, would never work. He simply used his pardon to plot against the throne. So you see, God is too wise to say to sinful man, I pardon you, I forgive you. When a sinner comes to Calvary and lays down the arms of his rebellion and accepts the redemption which is in Christ, Jesus God regenerates that person. He makes him anew. He gives him a new heart. He takes away the old rages and the old resentments and he puts within a new love and a new loyalty. That's what the Gospel is all about. That is the miracle that David could not work for Absalom. It's the very miracle that David's greatest son can work for us. And without such regeneration, a pardon from God simply aggravates the sin. You see, God wants nothing less from us or in us than a new birth and a new nature, a holy nature, like unto his, one which will love him and be obedient to his commandments. And without that, nothing works my friend nothing works and so we see the rage of Absalom that led him at last to murder his brother take the law in his own hand and accuse the one upon the throne of indifference to human suffering and sin and wrongdoing and then we see the resentment of Absalom resenting being punished and resenting just as much being pardoned and at last we come to to the terrible part of the story, the terrible part, the rebellion of Absalom. Absalom's rebellion against David is of special interest because David was the human author of his being and his rightful Lord and King. Thus Absalom's rebellion against David illustrates the rebellion of men against God, who is the true ultimate author of their being and against the Lord Jesus who is indeed their Lord and King now Absalom wanted nothing to do with David he wanted no part of David's love and he wanted no part of David's law all he wanted was to seize sovereignty for himself he wanted nothing at all to do with David at all And every unregenerate son of Adam's fallen race is exactly the same. So far as God is concerned, they don't want anything to do with it. They just want to run the show themselves. They don't want to be under any obligation to God. They don't want to have anything to do with God. They simply want to run their own life. Regardless of anything that God might say or do. And I say to God, you keep your hands off my life. Off the phone with you? I'm running my own life. And you know, with Absalom, the, the whole thing was very successful for a while. But he didn't win in the end. And you know, like David did with Absalom, God may let you have your own way for a while, and you might seem to be having great success running your own life without reference to God but like Absalom my friend you can't win in the end you can't win in the end that's the great underlying lesson of Absalom's rebellion at last he went down to terrible defeat and was sold headlong and unrepentant into eternity because you can't rebel against God and with. There are four things about Absalom's rebellion highlighted in the sacred text. We notice, first of all, it was a fraudulent rebellion right from the start. Absalom set out to deceive. He pretended for quite a while to be a a loyal subject of the king. And all the time he was deliberately planning and launching a policy of subversion within the kingdom we are distinctly told that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He began by setting himself up in royal style with chariots and horses and an imposing guard with panting steeds colorful uniforms, flags and tenants and coats of arms and armor all set in contrast to David's deliberate He pretended great care and concern for justice. Show your hearty greetings. Meeting the farmers coming in from their farms. And it was all put on. And then his pretended piety when well, he asked leave of David to go to Hebron to fulfill a vow to God. when all the time he knew perfectly well that Hebron was the meeting place. The gathering point of the rebellion. In other words, Absalom was an out-and-out hypocrite. As long as it suited his purpose, as long as he needed a veneer of religion, no effort was too great. But it was all a means to an end. And when the end was in sight, off it all came. He personifies the deceitfulness of the human heart. For God has said that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Absalom's rebellion was a fraudulent rebellion. It was not only a fraudulent rebellion, it was a fierce rebellion. Once Absalom felt strong enough to declare his goal, he made no bones about it. Off with David from the throne, he said. To death with David, let Absalom reign. Sound the trumpet in Hebron for Absalom. Shout out, Absalom, reign The whole crux of the rebellion, if you study the story, had to do with the death of David. The council of Ahithophel struck right to the very heart of the plot. He said, let me now choose out 12,000 men, and I will pursue after David this night, and I will come upon him while he is weary and weak-handed, and will make him afraid of all the people that are with him for free, and I will smite the king. Every man and every woman and every boy and every girl who will not accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord endorses that same fierce rebellion that said, we'll not have this man to reign over us, let him be crucified. It was a fierce rebellion. The rebellion that lurks in the hearts and souls of every human being outside of Christ is a fierce rebellion which has expressed itself at Calvary, with iron nails driven into the hands of our Maker, and spittle running down his face, and his back scourged like a farmer's field. But I want you to notice something else. It was a healthy rebellion. It gave full play to the vilest passions and lusts of the human heart. The story of what Absalom did to David's wives is so utterly vile. It's a public scandal. We can't even read such pages of that decently in a mixed audience. It was a filthy rebellion. It seems that nothing was too low. Nothing was too infamous. Nothing was too filthy. Nothing was too vile for Absalom to do. For our Bible teaches us that the human heart is rotten to the core. It was David himself, who having taken knowledge of his own rotten heart, who had written, they are corrupt, they have done abominable works there is none that doeth good they are all gone aside they are all together become filthy had Absalom read his father's psalms he would have read his own heart and known its own depths of depravity but that was the last thing that a man like Absalom would do it was a filthy rebellion It was, moreover and finally, a futile rebellion. At first, the flood tide seemed to go with Absalom. It seemed that David had been successfully overthrown. It seemed as all the world had joined in. We read the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. And in Ahithophel, Absalom had a counselor who was almost inspired. He was the Judas of the Old Testament. And had he listened to the counsel of Ahithophel, he would have won. But we read this significant statement. We read that the Lord had appointed to defeat the counsel of Ahithophel, to the intent that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. It's a dramatic scene where these two counselors the one sent as a spy into Absalom's court from David and Ahithophel. Absalom's counselor, the man who once had been David's friend, and these two men are trying to persuade Absalom which course he should take, and the, the whole scale balances just almost evenly, and it almost looked as if Absalom was going to take Ahithophel's counsel. But God had, de- had decreed had appointed to defeat the council of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. And down the scale went, and he made that fatal decision. And from that moment the rebellion was doomed. God had simply stepped in, and at the crucial moment when Absalom was trying to decide which way the battle should go, he chose the wrong advice. As simple as that. You know, God may let you get away with your rebellion for a long, long time. But all of a sudden, he's going to step in. And something that you hardly notice is going to happen. And that thing that hardly, you hardly notice when it takes place, you don't realize that you've made the fatal decision. And down you go. Down you go. And you go down without redemption and without any more hope. That's when rebellion came to nothing. He became fuddled in his brain. He couldn't de- de- detect good counsel from bad counsel. And he was ensnared and slain. And he died without repentance. There was no room for repentance when the time came. He didn't have time for repentance. And he died without redress. Not even David's tears. Not even David's forgiveness. Not even David's agonizing cry could purchase for him one more moment of grace. When David heard of Absalom's death, he wept. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would God I had died for thee. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. But it was all in vain. Absalom's body was cut down from the tree. It was not even laid in the family sepulchre in Jerusalem, it was cast into a pit in a wood and bruised and pounded by stones and left to rot like his own evil memory. And it is said that everyone who passed that way was accustomed to throw a stone upon the heap that covered Absalom's remains. And as he threw it, he would say, Cursed be the memory of rebellious Absalom and cursed be the memory of all wicked children that rise up in rebellion. That's what God thinks of rebellion. Absalom died without redress. For my friend, if you die unrepentant and if you die in your sins and if you die after persistent rebellion against God, you die without Christ and you die without hope. Not even the love of the Lord Jesus can reach a man once he's in hell. David, born, word God, I have died for you all, Absalom. Jesus has died for you. To spur like love like that is to cut yourself off from all hope. The story of a rebel. The story of a man who had every chance that a young man could have. He could have had the throne legitimately eventually. David would have given it to him. But because he couldn't understand the meaning of grace and love, because